Hello, I'm Oliver Wang. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock. You know, a hot album, a scorching side. And today, we'll be linking hands together and wading into Madonna's 1989 album, Like a Prayer. Like a Prayer was big in the spring of 1989. Conservative criticism and critical acclaim. Shout out to critical acclaim. Wasn't as successful as 1986's seven times platinum True Blue, but Like a Prayer still managed to rack up quadruple platinum status in the U.S., and it marked a shift in Madonna's stature from pop star to cultural icon. In NPR's 150 Greatest Albums by Women list, Like a Prayer was number 13. That's not a lucky number. And writer <laughs> Laura Seidel described how it, quote, takes on the struggles of a generation that refused to accept spirituality without sensuality and led the way for a new generation of top female pop stars to express themselves. talk about Like a Prayer, we invited pop music writer Ann Powers. Besides being one of my favorite people in the world, Ann is inarguably one of the most accomplished and influential music writers we have, currently working as lead music critic at National Public Radio. She was co-author of Rock She Wrote, Women Write About Rock, Pop, and Rap, author of her own memoir, Weird Like Us, My Bohemian America, and author of the brand spanking new book, Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, body and soul in American music. She's joining us from Nashville, Tennessee. Anne, thank you for joining us. I am so delighted to be here. Thanks for having me, Oliver and Morgan. I'm glad you went with such an obscure and undersung artist to talk about on this <laughs> uh, on this episode. And obviously, I'm kidding. Uh, and the thing is, Madonna's catalog is so mind-alteringly big and influential. Why pick this specific album? Well, a few reasons. One... Uh, it really is my favorite Madonna album, Like a Prayer, from everything about it, from the actual songs, the the production, the, the track listing, the packaging. Uh, and, you know, you this is really a podcast about loving an album. And I really had an album-loving experience with this record because when Madonna put out this record, the vinyl... You know, it's the cover is a sh- Herbert's shot of just her torso. It's with uh, belly bared in some jeans and you can see necklaces hanging down and stuff. And it was scented, patchouli scented. <laughs> so I loved to sit in my little bedroom. I lived in San Francisco at the time, uh, 16th and Guerrero Street. And I would sit there in my little, I had this little room that, that kind of stuck out at the top of the apartment building. It actually was almost like a a cheapo penthouse and uh, I would sit there and smell the patchouli and listen to this record. So it really was, was my album experience with Madonna. And there's one other reason which Oliver is maybe special to, to us, you and me, because of course we've hung out a lot and at the pop conference at uh, experience music project every year where music writers gather. And one heated subject always is at that annual gathering of writers 
is poptimism, the kind of life path of the critic who loves mainstream popular music. Yes. And I really think that this album is the root of my poptimism. Oh, that's so, interesting. Huh. <laughs> yeah, because um, before this album came out, you know, I was a bohemian kid. I'd been into punk. I loved all kinds of music, but I don't know. And I was into more indie kind of – I was actually working at Tower Records mm. um, in the mid-'80s, and I got into everything reggae, blues, indie music. But I wasn't so much into mainstream pop. But in 1989, which is the year that this record came out, uh, I met Eric Weisbard, my husband. And uh, I don't know. Was, he was into – he wasn't necessarily into pop, but somehow he was a music writer like me. And we got to talking yeah. a lot about pop music and and just both of us got really into Madonna. And, and I think it was my first kind of realization that a contemporary mainstream artist could make a work of art. So that's important to me. So I'm curious because, you know, you obviously probably were – you were aware of Madonna previous to this since this is – I think her – was her fourth album. And she had already – I mean, True Blue, which had come out – just three years before that had gone, you know, a gazillion times platinum. So what was your opinion of Madonna prior to the, Like a Prayer? I was definitely a Madonna fan, but I don't think I'd really delved into her as an album artist. And mm. this, and I think for her, even though she'd had, of course, her self-titled debut album, which had tons of hits and, and of course, Like a Virgin, right. which made her that cultural icon. Right. Um, it was like a prayer that really felt like that album experience that she was offering me. And I think there's a few reasons for that, which we can go into. But yeah. but I think this was her intentional move to become, you know, an album artist and be taken seriously, even including the cover image, because, of course, it's a feminized version of the famous cover of the Rolling Stones album, Sticky Fingers, right. which shows Mick Jagger's. Uh, crotch area <laughs> which you can zip down his, and that is his, another favorite album of mine yes and i enjoy that album cover too but yeah. for different reasons <laughs> so you know there's uh the madonna that i know and i came to know madonna in uh 1983 like a virgin to know her through her silently because uh, I was in Catholic school and we <laughs> and I wasn't allowed to play the record so my neighbor had to play it for me and I was like ooh um, and then you know then we've got of course we've got True Blue which is a uh, you know mellowed down smoothed out and then Like a Prayer so it's, it's almost like a tale of two similes Like a Virgin Like a Prayer and some difference in between obviously the time marked a shift in Madonna as, as an artist would you agree with that and, and how did she changed to you between those albums? Oh, absolutely, Morgan. And first, I want to just say I also was raised Catholic, and this album is almost a concept album about Madonna's Catholicism, yeah, her yeah. struggles with Catholicism, her her feelings about her family. She made it when she was 30, which was the same age her mother was when she died. There's a song about her dad on the album. So, so the Catholic themes on the album really speak to me as well. You know, Madonna was already this 
massive icon, most famous woman in the world. By 1989, she was going through a complicated time in her life. Her marriage to Sean Penn, the actor, had dissolved in violence. She also addresses that on this album. She had tried acting. She'd been on Broadway in Speed the Plow. I think it was on Broadway. Anyway, got terrible reviews. So she was, you know, feeling knocked around by life a little bit. She worked with Patrick Leonard, the producer who she also worked with on True Blue and later would work with on, on other projects on this album. And I think they they really just tried so many things on mm. this record. And that's what I love about it. It is really Madonna exploring everything from the ballads that would lead her to Evita to, you know, obviously the dance music she always did so well to rock elements. And then, of course... We have to talk about the influence of Prince on this record because oh no doubt we will the purple, the purple one <laughs> we're going to get there we'll absolutely get his due. I do want to come back to this notion about her talking about her life because I do think one of the things that distinguishes like a prayer is that this is Madonna. I mean, she's still the pop icon, but now she's really revealing a lot about herself. And there's a very confessional quality to a lot of different songs. And and you were just mentioning about her very well-known troubled divorce from uh, Sean Penn. And she addresses her marriage probably in several songs, but the most explicit would be on Till Death Do Us Part. Did it surprise you to hear someone, especially of that stature, getting into something so personal as as their divorce? And of course, it, you know, there's a long tradition of big pop stars, you know, singing and talking about their divorces. But again, this is not, I feel like, something we had heard from Madonna prior to this. I think what what struck me about that song, "Till Death Do Us Part," was the the frankness with which she addressed the violence in their marriage which yeah that's a complicated story that she has she herself has gone back and forth on that um you know he actually went to jail for a time because of the violence that transpired uh between them and this song you know it vases are flying in this song it's very very intense it's it's it gets into the real stuff and and i admired her her openness about that. The other thing that's weird about this song, though, and I wonder if you all think it's weird, is it's like a high energy dance mix. It really right? is, right? So it's like that's the weirdest thing for a song about domestic violence, you know. <laughs> It's almost like you're trying to put a spin on this, and you would expect something like that to be sort of dour and dreary, and and yet this is really poppy to me. Yeah, no, you'd think it'd be more like, uh, say, Pat Benatar's Hell is for Children or something. <laughs> awesome song, but... Right. Or, I mean, to me, the gold standard of marriages falling apart would be Marvin Gaye's entire Hear My right. Dear, which <laughs> oh, is, yeah. I, I mean, a literal divorce album from, for settlement, for which is sure. a, a conversation for a different time. But yeah, I mean, like I said, there is a long tradition and Madonna is part of this, I guess, rich tapestry of sorts. <laughs> tapestry <laughs> of pain. But, you know, it's... The thing about this record is very... This, to me... And it's not like Madonna's my friend or anything. I mean, I have interviewed her once, but but uh, 
what I project upon her personality is a, a kind of intense orderliness, workaholism, uh, you know, desire to keep everything in control. And that's the thing that's really interesting about Like a Prayer, because even though it is very confessional, it is has a concept album feel, and vocally she's taking a lot of chances on this album, um, there's a kind of orderliness to it. She mm. hits all these beats, right? She has a song about her mom, Promise to Try. She has a song about her dad. She has a song about her friends who've died of AIDS, Spanish Eyes. Uh, and then she has a song about her marriage, and it all sort of fits in, like, checking off the boxes and that doesn't yeah. make it any less sincere in fact it makes it more sincere because that really seems to be how she is and then on top of all these all of these other mixed messages and other themes then you've got empowerment with express yourself so in, oh, in the goodness. middle of all that she's sort of championing you to find yourself and, that, and that's actually one of my favorite songs off of this album In Express Yourself, I hear a song that is still completely relevant today, that still is a total club banger that I would be happy to hear on a dance floor mm. ever, you know, anytime. And and um, and I also hear uh, a song that is a tonic. Uh, I joked the other day to someone that I had listened to Express Yourself three times in a row and uh, I felt cleansed. <laughs> cleansed of all the all the, <laughs> the horrible stuff that's happening in the world right now. Um, there's, you know, I just, ah, I just love this song. I just love that she um, is honoring uh, not just her own spirit, she's encouraging women. I also think, you know, it's very much addressed to her uh, LGBTQ audience. Right. So there's the pride aspect, but, you know, and then there's that great line, uh, the immortal line, satin sheets are very romantic. What happens when you're not in bed? Which in 1989, you know, that was an important thing to say. It was an important thing to say. This was a moment... Um, for complicated moments sexually for the for America, certainly um, the AIDS epidemic had wreaked havoc yeah. on on kind of attitudes about sexuality. But it was also a moment of like sex positivity among a lot of young women I knew, and um, you know we all felt very free. But to have this this very sexually uh, I don't know empowered icon also reminding us. It's not just about being sexually free. It's also about getting respect outside of the bedroom. Right, right. That was an important message. And if I can add, um, satin sheets were also big in 1989. Uh, <laughs> I'm not speaking from experience. It's something I Re heard. Oh, really, Morgan? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe one of us got receipts from photos from your bedroom back then. Um, yes. And, and I think you raise a really good point here. And this is something that you talk extensively about in your new book, Good Booty, where you talk about the relevance of Madonna, specifically in the 80s, which is the backdrop of the AIDS crisis. Yes. And I imagine that for someone who was born after that, so people like my students, the people that, you know, your husband Eric teaches at the University of Alabama, they they can read about 
AIDS and HIV, but it probably seems somewhat academic as opposed to those of us who grew up in the 80s with it not seeming like a very bad STD, but really a death sentence. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about how does Madonna's career, and especially sort of what she's doing at this point in the late 80s, how does this, how is this in dialogue with what's happening in America because of um, the, the AIDS crisis? Yeah, I mean, I, I was, I'm, I'm, Old enough that I was in my 20s in the mid 80s in San Francisco. And it was just, you know, you know, Oliver, I mean, it was, it was devastating. And everybody did live in fear. There was, there were, you know, a lot of years where people really weren't sure exactly how this virus was transmitted or if there would ever be a a cure, you know, and, and you just never knew. And at the same time, you know, it, at least in, in my world, among my friends, people were not, you know, getting themselves to a nunnery. They were still out there being pretty free, mm-hmm. but with that specter always over us, you know. And I think Madonna did several important things within her role as a as a pop star. She was a huge advocate for, you know, awareness of the virus. She was a, she really supported her gay fans and, and, you know, gave money to, to organizations who were trying to fight the epidemic. But also, you know, she created a world of fantasy and empowerment in her music and within her videos that allowed for an experience of sexuality that could be safe, right? You know, mm-hmm. like it was, a, it was a visual experience. We were, this was the moment when we're shifting to MTV. She's the great MTV icon along with Michael Jackson and Prince. And, um, you know, she, she helped create a world where you could experience sexual delight, but safely, I mm-hmm. guess. So in some ways she is like inventing a form of safe sex through her music. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, you, you address this also in, in Good Booty about how Madonna, and probably right around this, the time of this album, you know, two, two of, her, of her biggest fan bases were gay men and teenage girls. And as you, you point out, these are, quote, two demographics uh, whose own erotic explorations had long represented risk and impropriety. And Madonna, as you're suggesting here, is kind of creating this kind of safeness through herself and her music and her videos in which sexuality can be explored and expressed. A little, you know, in, 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 I guess, in response or um, uh, in the context of that risk. Yeah. I mean, I, I went to the Blonde Ambition Tour, which was the tour off this album that famously became uh, Madonna's documentary, Truth or Dare, where she simulated masturbation on a bed. <laughs> it was the famous Jean-Paul Gaultier cone bras that her dancers, male and female, wore. This was, right. this was amazing erotic display. And, and the audience for that tour and for Madonna in general was, was just full of young girls and gay men together, which, you know, many of my favorite artists have that, <laughs> have that crossing. I don't know. I'm thinking about George Michael also. Yeah. Um, right. but yeah, Madonna, she allowed, uh, girls to be bold about themselves. There's, there's even a book called I Dream of Madonna that came out, I'm not sure, maybe in the 90s, that collects like girls' fantasies and dreams involving Madonna. And they're all very, you know, much about like, I was flying through the air with Madonna. (laughs) You know, she, she, I was a little, you know, I wasn't a teenage girl when I got into Madonna. And the artists that did that for me were 
just slightly before that, like Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders or, or Debbie Harry from Blondie. In fact, here's a funny thing. I was working for the SF Weekly in the 80s, and maybe the first of 100 million articles I have written about like the role of women in rock um, was illustrated, I'll never forget it, with an image that our art director created that was half Madonna's face and half Debbie Harry's face. So, oh, that's you know, fascinating. <laughs> for me, it was like continuum, you know. Yeah. I don't know, Morgan, how did you feel about that? Did you feel freed by Madonna? I wanted to be. <laughs> I wanted to be freed by Madonna. That sounds very diplomatic. I, I wanted to be, but the, but the issue for me was I, I grew up in a religious family. I had a lot of uh, you know uh, closet enjoyment of Madonna, but couldn't publicly I, I don't think express it. And by the time I could, I was I had moved on to Prince. Um, <laughs> I was a much much bigger Prince fan than Madonna fan, and I liked all the club stuff because I hung out in, in dance clubs. So every dance remix Madonna, I was I was there, but but. But growing up with Madonna, for me, it was, there was just so much shock value, yeah. especially as, you know, as a person growing up in a religious family. And I, and I do sort of want to talk about, you know, the role of, of, of religion and, and faith on this album, particularly as it relates to active contrition. Because if you know, you've mentioned growing up Catholic, too. Active contrition is big. I, I remember that as if, you know, I said that yesterday. Oh, my God, I'm hardly sorry for having offended thee. And I detest and I all, my sins. all my sins. Right. <laughs> and that's the opening, pretty much the opening of her album. So I remember when I heard that, I was so confused. I was like, wait, is she sorry? Is she not sorry? <laughs> so if we could hear a bit of active contrition. Oh, my God. So in an interview with Rolling Stone two years ago, Madonna says about uh, she says about the intersection of sexuality and spirituality. I'm defying the convention that you can't be both spiritual and sexual or that you have to be one personality trait. There's no law that says you cannot be a spiritual person and a sexual person. In fact, if you have the right consciousness, sex is like a prayer. And speaking of like a prayer, you can't really separate the song from the video. So I wanted to get your take on the video. What were the themes? Because for me, I was so confused about the video and all the themes. I was like, is this spirituality with sexual overtones or sexuality with spiritual overtones? So I just wanted to get your your thoughts on first the role of, of faith in her music and, and specifically this album and also Like a Prayer. Oh, ab- absolutely central to my love of this album because having also been raised Catholic and, and being a little older than you, Morgan, you know, I, I was a young adult when this album came out. So I was fully in my own space as a sexual person, as an adult. And, and I was still, you know, kind of going through dealing with my Catholic upbringing. But, you know, I also super f- identified with Madonna's like bold claiming of, of eroticism as part of uh, what spirituality is all about. And, you know, the video to me felt 
I don't know. It had a logic to me, you know. It just it、mm. just made sense to me, and and partly I think this is because I was in San Francisco. So here I was in San Francisco, living in the Mission District. I was fascinated at the time uh, by uh, Yoruba and Santeria、sure. uh, traditions, which were like. Everywhere in my neighborhood, and and I often would go to the Botanica Yoruba, and you know, in my silly Bohemian white girl Bohemian way, whatever, I would like, you know, buy candles and incense and talk to the people there, and I was trying to absorb this thing, and it was a time in pop music. Where other people were exploring this too, David Byrne of the Talking Heads had made a film about Condomble that, that actually it came out a year maybe later.、Um, so the reference to You know Saint Martin de Porres that's in the video,、um, often mistaken for a black Jesus, but but she says it's Saint Martin de Porres. You know she makes love to this saint. Well, I was really studying all this these traditions where saints were, you know, masked versions of of African diaspora deities, and people were expected to have encounters with saints. You know, in the Yoruba tradition and in Santeria. There was this idea of、um, that you could have an encounter with your orisha, and that's how it spoke to me at the time,、uh, which is a very、uh, part of Catholicism, even you know in European aspects of Catholicism. If you've been to Spain or Italy, you've seen you know how people in churches you know they'll. They, they gravitate toward these statues and have a strong connection to the symbolism of the saints. So I guess I had a personal connection with it through、mm-hmm. that. I guess my my issue with the video or the thing that was so stunning is it was hard for me to get past the burning cross. I wanted、mm. to see that as as religious, but I didn't see it that、mm. way.、Um, right. So, so I sort of got stuck there. I wasn't as well versed in Yoruba as as I know a little bit more about it now. But then I was just like, wait, so. <laughs> Madonna's in the church, scantily clad, right, <laughs> dancing with Leon. Okay, I couldn't even get into Saint Martin de Porres.、So、I was like, "That's Leon,"、uh, and he's supposed to be Jesus. And I and, and I didn't know if this was just more shock value because I, I also wasn't sure if, like a prayer, the video was about was was also about race. Was this about a black man being accused、right. of a crime?、Mm, I just wasn't、right. sure.、Mm. And in the、yeah. context of my feeling about Madonna, and although I had love for her, I thought there were a lot of outside of me being religious. I thought there was a lot of shock value in her material. I didn't. Know if the point which she was trying to make was going to get was going to get lost in what was so shocking about the video, and I also didn't know what she was trying to say about her relationship to Catholicism. And maybe you have a little bit more insight on that because I I was curious if she, if this was her embracing of Catholicism or her rejection of Catholicism, or her attempt to claim Catholicism for herself,、sure. you know, in a way. But but the race stuff is really important, and I think you know. As much love as I have for Madonna, I mean, throughout her career, she hasn't always been completely on point <laughs> when dealing with putting with, to with put、race. it politely. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, which which is so complicated because in her personal life, you know, her family is multiracial, both through adoption and the adoption of of several of her children, and her daughter Lourdes, whose dad Carlos Leon is is Cuban, you know, so. As with many things with Madonna, she is very imperious, you know, and she does、mm. um, have such strong convictions that I think sometimes maybe political correctness eludes her, both in terms of the way she confronts 
the right. You know, she confronted the Pope. You know, they she got censored on this Pepsi dropped her from their <laughs> ad campaign because of this video. Yeah. The Pope was mad at her. But also, she's not sensitive about, progr- you know, political correctness on the left either. So I think she can be faulted for that. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back with more Heat Rocks after this. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my friend's favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my favor. I'm Judge John Hodgman. You're hearing the voices of real litigants, real people who have submitted disputes to my internet court at the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I hear their cases. I ask them questions. They're good ones. And then I tell them who's right and who's wrong. Thanks to Judge John Hodgman's ruling, my dad has been forced to retire one of the worst dad jokes of all time. Instead of cutting his own hair with a flowbie, my husband has his hair cut professionally. I have to join a community theater group. And my wife has stopped bringing home wild animals. It's the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Find it every Wednesday at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks, Judge John Hodgman. Hey, you, with the headphones. Just between you and me, the MaxFun store just got some of that sweet, sweet new merchant stock. You know, that merch from your favorite MaxFun shows? Could be posters, tote bags, shirts, stickers, patches, aprons. We got it all. Well, we got a lot. Point is, there's some new stuff. Go to MaxFunStore.com. Well, I had a question that I think bridges together a lot of different threads that we've been talking about. And we, we previously listened to Active Contrition, uh, and that was Prince doing the solo, I think maybe uncredited on there. But yeah. Prince appears, and I, I didn't even realize this until I revisited this album, is that Prince is kind of all over uh, like a prayer. And in particular, you know, him and Madonna record a song uh, together, co-write it, uh, which is Love Song. This is reflective of my just general Madonna ignorance, at least for anything that was not a top charting single, which I'm guessing Love Song wasn't because I I just have no memory of ever hearing this. So I had no idea Prince was even on this album. And of course, like I said a moment ago, he's all over it. And it's remarkable to think, you know, in 89, we're talking about two of the biggest American pop artists working together. What did it mean for Prince and Madonna to be collaborating? And I guess more to the point... What did each of them bring that helped to complement one another, especially in that moment in their respective careers? Yeah, you know, Morgan, you said that Prince is your your favorite artist. And I mean, I always say that Prince is my, my favorite artist, too. And, and I could have easily brought in Purple Rain, but I figured somebody already had. Or 1999 to this podcast. I mean, those are fundamental for me, too. But Prince and Madonna being together and, you know, uh, apparently they were briefly together, Ooh. but uh, but only briefly as far as we know. But th- I don't know. I, I'm not quite sure how the world just didn't explode when that happened. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. I mean, if that, if that happened today... <laughs> right? But that seemed to kind of be a little bit under the radar back then. It definitely was under the radar and it's so strange. I You know, I wish I knew more about why that is. I need to do a little research on that. Um you know, both of them are such control freaks right. that I figure that that when it, you know on whatever level 
it didn't really work out between them. And and what I've read, there was some definite ego sparring. Mm. Um, they they maybe both just decided we're gonna you know I'm gonna downplay this completely. Mm. And, and it's a shame because to me that song love song it just it, it it reveals so much promise in their collaboration. It's like wow Madonna as a Prince protege, you know, and Prince learning to maybe open up his sound a little to, you know, Madonna's uh, very mainstream style. Um, I mean, it's definitely the funkiest track For Madonna sure. yeah. ever recorded. It, it, For sure. <laughs> and it sounds very much like a Prince track. And yes. and there's something that you write uh, in Good Booty where you, you, you mentioned that Madonna employed image and voice to cultivate sexuality. Prince found his strongest tools in lyrics and instrumentation. And I'm wondering if that observation applies to this particular song. Yeah, I really think it does. I mean, Madonna's vocal is so different on this this song than anywhere else really in her whole career. And and you know, the duet between them and and, and the shape of the song, like just that funky melody, that sinuousness to the to the vocal, it just it really um it puts her in in a really confident sounding and relaxed sounding place. That, you know, whereas one thing I actually really like about the rest of this album, and especially the ballads, is she's pretty raw, and some of those vocals even almost sound clunky, mm. but but in a way that I love, because I, f- I feel like she was really p- pushing herself, whereas in Love Song, she just sounds, she is just in a groove, you know, and, and she's grooving with him, and imagine if we had a whole album of that. It would oh be my incredible. God, yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, maybe there is one and it's in the vaults. And so some, someone's going to have to reach out to his sister and be like, you got to crack the vaults because we feel <laughs> like know. there are, you know. <laughs> you know, the thing that struck me about this song is not only to your point, Anne, is it the one of the funkiest I've ever, you know, experienced with Madonna. But it also doesn't sound anything like some of the songs Prince did with with people he was rumored to be dating. So yes. this isn't like Erotic mm. City with Sheila E. Mm. It's not yeah. You Got the Look or Sugar Walls with Sheena Easton. God, I hope my mother doesn't listen to this episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not Nasty Girl, Vanity Six. It's almost subdued, Prince. It's sexy because I think of the arrangement of the song, but mm. lyrically, I think they both sort of hold back. It's not Madonna shocking us with what a freak she is, and it's not Prince doing the same. So, And that is called Love Song. Um, this is one of my favorite tracks off the album, but I, I, I don't know if the rumors are true based on, you know, that this is sort of different than Prince's songs with other people that he's dating. I hope it's true because it's just a good story. Yeah. <laughs> if it's true, it was very brief, I think. But, but um, I think, you know, to that point, Morgan, um, not that he, not that Prince didn't respect those other women he was involved with. And, and Prince's relationships with women were so incredibly complicated. But, yes. uh, and he certainly respected uh, Sheila E as his equal. But there is the interplay in this, you know, it's two equals. It really is. And there, it's almost like it's about two equals. You know, the song is about 
two people who are kind of trying to read each other, you know, and, and the, you know, he's, he can't put Madonna into a, a role or a slot. He sure. can't, you know, he's not getting her to say, is the water warm enough? You know, <laughs> as he does to Wendy. That's a jam though. I'm glad you brought that up. That, that is, is a jam. jam. <laughs> We've talked a lot about some of the big hits off of this album and then some of the smaller songs. And Anne, I'm wondering, do you have a favorite song, your your fire track off this album? Have we already talked about it? Well, certainly one that I love to the end of time is Cherish. Cherish is, is uh, it's a light-toned song compared to some of the heavy uh, confessional tracks on this record. It has that buoyancy um, that many of Madonna's best singles do from her very first singles yeah. all the way to uh, Ray of Light. And um, Cherish feels like a girl group song in some ways. And, and also it, it interpolates... Uh, the Association's 1960s hit Cherish, both in the lyrics and I think in the melody, the structure of the song. Wow, okay. And, uh, you know, another thing I really love about, there's a few lyrics on this song that I love, and, you know, Madonna writing with Patrick Leonard, her producer. Um, I love when she says, and this is such a girl group lyric, she says, you know, Romeo and Juliet, they never felt this way, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> and it's such like a simple, like, right. it's just a funny, silly, like teenage thing. But, you know, whenever you hear Romeo and Juliet in a song, it usually, if this was a Bruce Springsteen song, you know, Romeo and Juliet would, would just lead to some like dramatic scene where, you know, somebody's bil- spilling their blood on the sidewalk. But Madonna, she's just like, you know what? This is better than Romeo and Juliet. And that's like all yeah. she has to say about it. <laughs> I love that. And then there's one other lyric that I think is really important in the song, and it's when she says, you've got the power to make me feel good. And Mm. it's just, you know, I think Madonna, one of her most valuable gifts that she gives us is that she really values pleasure. Mm -hmm. You know, simple pleasure, the pleasure of dancing, the pleasure of sex. And, And just that line, it's just awesome like you know not you've got the power to overwhelm me or sweep me away but just to make me feel good and i just i think the lyrics in this song are great um and and we have been talking a lot about the the songwriting here but we've also mentioned co-producer patrick leonard who i think did all but three songs off of this album and as you mentioned earlier and that he had also worked extensively on true blue and had worked on a couple of uh, her project after like a prayer can we just talk a little bit about what was leonard's contribution here what did he and madonna discover together in terms of shaping a sound that became associated with her 
I think, you know, she has a strong vision. She wants to try a lot of things, but she's always worked with producers to, you know, access different parts of herself, whether early on, like Jelly Bean Benitez, mm-hmm. or, or much later working with William Orbit on Ray of Light, which is my other favorite Madonna record. Patrick Leonard, you know, he's able to help Madonna try everything from like the rock guitar that opens the album on Like a Prayer to the kind of show tuny aspect to, you know, some of the ballads to even um, that goofy song, Dear Jesse, that, that um, actually also I think is really influenced by Prince, but it's a kind of a, it's almost like a children's song. It was written for Patrick Leonard's daughter. enables her to try all these different musical styles and it gives the album a feeling of of experimentation and and excitement it doesn't feel like a product it just really feels like madonna she's like being the best artist she can be yeah and one thing she said about patrick leonard and rolling stone she said we're both from the midwest and and deep down at our core we're both geeks we usually don't write frivolous songs although we've done that too but there's something magical um, about about our writing Patrick Leonard also worked a lot with Leonard Cohen at the end of his life. Mm. And uh, yeah, he made three albums with Leonard Cohen. uh, And they're just fantastic albums, uh, including his last album. And, um, you know, in that case as well, I think, here's Leonard Cohen, who at that point in his life, you know, his voice is like, you know, <laughs> he barely has a voice left, but but um, but he's still writing incredible songs, incredible lyrics, and he's got you know this amazing sort of sense of life and the world and philosophy and everything. And Patrick helped uh, bring out and flesh out those ideas uh, in in that absolute legend. Just as for Madonna at this point in her career, when she's trying to cope with her legend, he he helped her figure it out. What do you think is the sleeper jam? What's the song on the album that people are really missing the gold in? Hmm. Well, I think we talked a lot about about love song, but I'm going to talk about Promise to Try. So Promise to Try, you know, it's a it's a ballad. It's dedicated to Madonna's mom. It's very uh, touching and uh, and introspective. I love that that song for the vocal um, because it's just it's just like Madonna. She is, you know, doing her best to, like, be the. I don't know if I'm going to say like be the Celine or the Whitney or something like that. Not really that, but like imagine herself as the Evita she will one day be, you know, the 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 rival, self-styled rival to Patti LuPone. Mm. And she, you know, she doesn't have it. She's not that kind of a singer at all. But there's something so vulnerable in her attempt uh, to to sing in that classic Broadway ballad style and then having the song be about, um, you know, her mom and like dealing with her mom's death and and just you know it's it's very tender beautiful song 
we're in an age where a lot of artists these days are rediscovering the 80s. I feel like we've been rediscovering the 80s ever since the 80s. <laughs> but sure. I know. It, it's like, get over the 80s, right. people. It, it's not hard to imagine a contemporary artist wanting to revisit, you know, part of Madonna's catalog and maybe trying their hand at a cover. And I'm, you know, I don't know if you have ever thought about this, but I'm going to ask you this right now, Anne. Is there a song off this album that you would love to hear a contemporary artist try to tackle? And what would the song be? And who would the artist be? Ooh, okay. I got to think about that one for a second. Sure. Let's see. Sure. If I can just jump in here, I'd love to see Keep It Together done over. So R&B for me, I'd love to see Janelle Monet um, take that or make it, have it real cinematic and have Laura and Bula do it. <laughs> you know what, Morgan, I love that because I think Keep It Together for some reason is one of the weaker songs on the album. And sure. it's something to do with the production because the core of that song is great. So, um, and that was written with Stephen Bray, another frequent collaborator of Madonna's. It's one of the, I think it's the only track he has on the album. But right. yeah, it'd be great. I think Janelle would be a great, oh no, I'm sorry. He has, he also co-wrote Express Yourself. So that's like the best song. So I'm not going to pick up to Stephen Bray. And he's he still low. rule, dude. How about that? But, <laughs> but, but um, I love the idea of Janelle doing that song. Sure. I would love to hear um, Anony do Like a Prayer. I, I think that would be just incredible because one thing i've come to realize about like a prayer is that you know we are as we've talked about so distracted by the video and the controversy around it that we um tend to overlook just the way that that song captures like erotic rapture yeah, so beautifully yeah. it's like a super uh it's just an immersive experience of that and and uh she's right in it and i just feel like anony could mm, bring it on that and I want to ask you something that we always ask our guests as we close out, and that is if you could describe Like a Prayer in three words, what would they be? This is always tough to ask a writer because... <laughs> I know, know, I'm like, ah! No, I got it, though. Already. Very easy, though, for this one, actually. Body, mind, soul. Beautiful. It's like the connection between the body, the mind, and the soul yeah. all together, you know? It's like, this is her most, in some ways... uh her most cerebral album, along with Ray of Light. I think another album made at a moment when she was going through a lot of personal changes and, and um, exploring her spiritual life. It is, you know, about, as with all of her work, it is about eroticism and the body as well as about love and emotion. And, and then it's, you know, it's cerebral in its own way. It's her trying different forms, uh, trying different styles. And, and, you know, it's very well thought out in a way that, you know, is striking. So yeah. I think that's how I would describe it. That, that seems on point. That and also smells like patchouli. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, that'll do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Ann Powers. Her new book is Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in American Music. And you can find that on Day Street Books. Thanks for joining us, Anne. And where can people find you online? They can find me at Ann K. Powers, A-N-N-K-P-O-W-E-R-S on Twitter and Instagram. And then 
NPR Music. That's where my day job is, and um, you can find my writing there at NPR Music. Thanks so much for joining us today, It's truly a pleasure. Thanks to both of you, Oliver and Morgan. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wang, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself, Morgan Rhodes, and Nick Liao. And today's show was engineered and edited by Nick. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the historic Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Heat Rocks Pod. You can find a link to our Facebook group on our webpage, HeatRocksPod.com. That's where we'll post show notes for every episode, including a track list of everything you've heard today and more goodies. Again, that's at HeatRocksPod.com. Good to see you, Oliver. Good to see you too, Morgan. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.